You are now listening to Plant Talk, a podcast brought to you by Canada's Manufacturing Magazine. It is presented by Plant Magazine, Canada's industry voice since 1942, for manufacturing owners, senior executives, administrative and managers who represent all links in the manufacturing decision-making chain. Tune in to hear conversations with industry experts on comprehensive topics that are of utmost importance to the manufacturing industry. Thank you for joining us on Plant Talk. Today, we have two guests from Kunst Solutions on the podcast. Richard Kunst, President and CEO, and Mariella Castano, Senior Vice President and COO. Our focus today will be on the factory of the future. Thank you for coming on the Plant Talk podcast, Richard and Mariella. Before we dive into the topic, can you both give us a brief background of your expertise? Thank you, Mario. It's uh, really an honor to join you today and uh, must make a full admi- admission that uh, Mariella is not only my partner, but also my wife, and we are both lean practitioners. Uh, my background starts with uh, WEA. So I was the director of operations for music distribution uh, post studio for across Canada and had the opportunity to start up Warner Home Video from an operations perspective and ultimately the first CD plant. From there, I migrated over to Rockwell Automation, which was an engineer to order business, then had the opportunity to join the startup team at Toyota while working at Cami as the director of production control. And then ultimately we did a couple turnarounds. And most recently, uh, we really were involved in creating the factory of the future for Lazy Boy uh, to be the last furniture manufacturer standing within North America, seeing all the competition from a low cost country. Uh, Fortunately for the last uh, 15 years, Marielle and I have been running our own very boutique lean practice Uh, But that has been wonderful because it gives us insights into many, many different facilities and industry sectors. So this topic today really resonates with me. As far as my background, well, um, I happen to be a Canadian with an accent. I was born in Colombia where I studied industrial engineering and had the opportunity to work for the oil and petroleum industry as well as for the food industry. Like uh, many people decided that life was probably better living in the country and had lots of challenges and dreams to pursue. So I decided to move to Canada. And when I arrived to Canada, I was blessed to land right into the auto industry. This was a a supplier of tier two, tier three, became tier one to the auto industry. We were producing electromechanical components, um, a wonderful company with a very long history that um, allowed them to produce massive quantities of products. And they were very traditional. So lots of work in progress in between and very traditional methods of production. However, their engineering was very advanced and that very advanced thinking Uh, push the uh, limits to the operational group and challenge the operational group to change the way how business were uh, functioning to match uh, the engineering problems that they were developing. I happen to be tasked with uh, that very uh, amazing task of getting the business from a traditional manufacturing to a, a lean environment. After a very successful implementation, I decided to move to the food industry back once again. 
and I work for craft. And in this case, it was the dream of any Colombian person. I was working for the coffee division. Can you imagine a Colombian working in a coffee plant? It was just fantastic. And uh, the challenges there were uh, very interesting because back then uh, the food industry was uh, big and slow and, uh, you know, uh, there were few players that owned the market and we were able to get that very slow business and a very um, bash production base to a single piece flow and implementing tons of lean tools that brought a lot of flexibility to the business. Then after a while, I um, was presented with a challenge within Nestle Waters, and that was uh, a very interesting challenge to take because the level of automation was tremendous, uh, huge velocity, but also the pressures of the market were so big that presented all sorts of challenges for the management team and for the supply chain. So I took on this challenge, love it. Uh, we were not only surrounded by amazing technology, but by very, very smart people that were trying to predict what was the next move, not only of uh, our large competitors, but the smaller ones that were uh, eating our lunch out there. And then, like Richard said, uh, over 15 years ago, we decided to start our own business and bringing the knowledge and the expertise uh, that we were able to develop during all those years, working not only for the employers that we work for, but for their extended supply chain, um, gave us all the tools that were required to help organizations at different levels. So that's, uh, that's who we are. Great experience. Uh, let's jump right into it. Uh, do you believe that uh, the factory of the future is already here? You know, I think this is a very poignant uh, question, Mario. And the answer is yes and no. And I think this topic will remain timeless. Uh, I think the factory of the future is like trying to chase the horizon. You think you're getting close and all of a sudden it shifts. And, you know, when you broached this topic with us, it took me back many years ago uh, when I had a discussion with one of the fathers of the PLC. And we were having this discussion about the impact of PLCs on the factory of the future. And he alluded to me, he says, Richard, the factory of the future is only going to contain two items in it. And one is going to be a human and the other one is the dog. And the purpose of the dog is, the purpose of the human is to feed the dog. And the purpose of the dog is to bite the human if his hand tries to teach to reach a button. And that kind of sunk with me. And, uh, you know, I think we have grandiose visions that the factory of the future is gleaming, huge uh, enterprise filled to the brim with automation. But I'm seeing a little bit of a divergence, um, especially through COVID. We saw the technology of communication exponentially improve, uh, not only in the quality, but also in the acceptance by society. And what we started to see is that factory of the future, we're starting to see a lot of craft businesses that are being very, very competitive. So if you take a look at even the beer brewing industry, uh, before it was dominated by you know, the large breweries, but today almost on every street corner, you have a craft brewer that is competing with the big breweries. And there's only a fixed market of, of beer consumption out there. Uh, we're seeing it again in coffee. 
uh, you know, having recently removed here to Toronto, you know, the amount of craft coffee roasters in this community is just unbelievable. And, and so I think we're going to see pockets of those little entrepreneurial, uh, passionate industries uh, competing with the big, highly automated, capex heavy organization. So the factory of the future, I don't think it's been clearly defined. It, it's both. I think we're also uh, ultimately here in North America, our factory of the future is primarily there to compete against the intrusion of low cost country entries. And again, I think we saw that happen through COVID where in Canada, we weren't prepared because no longer were we uh, manufacturing any of our own uh, PPE. So we were basically at the mercy of begging other countries to share PPE with us. We saw the same with the vaccine that, you know, over time of people chasing uh, profit and gross margin, we have allowed some critical infrastructure businesses to evaporate from our landscape. But I think it's going to come back. I think people are starting to acknowledge uh, that that factory of the future is here and has the technology comes, you know, we're going to embrace it and it's going to be incrementals of continuous improvement. And Mario, I just want to do a quick pause to really acknowledge Plant Magazine because I really look at Plant Magazine, you know, you do a stellar job of giving the profiles of organizations, but the secret weapon is in the back of the magazine where you talk about the new product introductions. And those new products are little sparks of innovation that ultimately are going to get commingled into plant strategies that are going to create that plant of the future. So kudos to you for doing that. I will add that the plant of the future is always been in the making. Um, through our business, we've been blessed to visit many organizations behind the scenes and working with the engineering teams and production teams. And very, very often we see projects on the pipeline that have started and have not moved forward because they're going too fast. Their customers are not ready for it. Maybe their equipment manufacturers don't have the technology that they need to bring this particular strategic move to realization. So the factory of the future is always been there. I think that what is being missing is the deployment to that future, is uh, the proper supply chain, is having the proper uh, proper education between uh, those manufacturers and their customers. Uh, but know that there has been a lack to, to, to be ready. It's more that the receptors have been the ones that haven't been ready to receive in many cases. Yeah, it's, it, I think the other thing that we take a look at on the factory of the future, I don't think the question of availability to technology is, is definitely here. Uh, it may be cost prohibitive, uh, but I think the one factor that we have to really look at is that human factor, the people. Um, and, you know, Mariella and I spend a lot of time that we as a society underestimate the culture speed of absorption of new methodologies and new technologies by organizations. So, you know, you can jam this stuff in really quick, but if the people are not culturally willing to accept it, and in some cases they don't have the capability to accept it, uh, which is an inhibitor to that uh, true 
creating that leading edge or that factory of the future. So when we take a look at you know, some of the trends that, that we're seeing today, it's kind of interesting. So as we saw COVID uh, you know, impact our daily lives, you know, we started to see other emerging trends. And so it, it goes back to that discussion about the craft roasters, the craft brewers. If you go to the grocery store today, I'm now competing in the aisles with order pickers. You know, with Grocery Gateway and, and uh, you know, Uber Eats and all those delivery services where people are doing online ordering. I'm not seeing a lot of warehouses going up, but I mean, a lot of organizations are using their existing bricks and mortar as their local regional uh, DC to pick orders because society is saying, I'm not willing to wait 24 hours to get my order. I'm not willing to wait 48 hours to get my order. How am I gonna get it right now within an hour, within two hours? Which is really becoming a real competitor to like the Amazon. So if we look at the Amazons, highly automated, very sophisticated, large warehousing operations competing against the grocery chains with order pickers walking the aisles, picking five, six orders, using their smartphones, uh, in order to create, satisfy that customer demand within a couple hours. And COVID-19 has definitely accelerated that process. It has. It, it definitely has. has. Yes. If you think about communication, for example, when we were talking to our customers uh, across the, the pond, if you want to say it, when we wanted to talk to people in Australia or even in Europe, uh, you know, a conference call, uh, was the way to go, but you know what, if we can meet on site, it's even better. And COVID comes along and suddenly using a, a video camera and having a video call is, is easy and is accepted. And those people that did not want to do it uh, got on board. We were uh, listening to someone from Google saying that what they thought it would take 10 years uh, for people to adapt this uh, technology, they had to download in a month. And people within a month and a half absorb what they thought it would take 10 years. So definitely COVID has put a huge spin on, on manufacturing, but also on how people are seeing businesses and how people are seeing their customer and trying to understand their customer needs. It has changed. There has been a lot of confusion as well, where many people are wondering if what they were doing were the right things, and others have been confirming that they were doing the right things. And we see a mix of all of those. But I will say this was in some ways a positive shake there were organizations that were slow and very complacent uh, because their systems were delivering what they thought it was acceptable for their business. And when the competition became so ferocious out there and, and people were sitting at home and they didn't have the patience to wait for something or with a mouse click, they were getting product from anywhere in the world, then suddenly things are changing and people are reevaluating how they're making the products or providing their services. So I think one thing that has been a byproduct of COVID-19 is that the global village has definitely gotten smaller, has definitely gotten more crowded because, you know, everybody had to innovate or evaporate. 
Uh, and so everybody really embraced a new digital footprint strategy. So as Mariella said, you know, we always used to talk about the internet that your competitor was a mouse click away. But now, I mean, I can buy virtually anything within a mouse click, whether it's from Australia, the UK, downtown Toronto or, or St. Catharines, Ontario. Um, you know, so all of a sudden I'm not concerned about where the person is located. I'm more concerned about the logistics of how fast can I get that product, but the competition is there. So that factory of the future uh, virtually can be anywhere in the world uh, as long as it's providing me the value that I'm willing to pay for. I think also what COVID-19 did is it broke a lot of parallels and, and it changed customer loyalty. No, because they wanted to change it, but because they needed to change it. So look at the crisis that we had with the paper toilet. Uh, toilet paper, sorry, right? And you had your favorite brand and, you know, in regular times, if you didn't find your brand, you will go to another store. During the crisis, what did most of us do? Grab whatever was on the shelf, right? And and then suddenly you were trying new brands, uh, new products all together and, and you start liking them. Uh, you start seeing brands that you had not seen before and you start liking them. And now those mass producers are, are finding that this is challenging because their uh, portion of the market is getting diluted or is getting challenged by their customers. So suddenly they either have to innovate, they have to become more agile, or they have to reevaluate the product offerings that they had in front of the customers. So people are, are doing tremendous substitutions and, and this is creating a lot of confusion to manufacturers as well. Okay, switching gears a little bit, um, automation is at or near the top of most trends list. Uh, how do you see it impacting the factory of the future now and going forward? So I think automation, you know, there, there, there's different facets of automation that we have to take into consideration. I think we are in, in a, a totally unprecedented time uh, that data and data mining is just at an exceptional high point, which is driving uh, automated algorithms, whether what, what kind of ads we're seeing when we surf on the internet, uh, as we're going to online ordering. I mean, people are just capturing our personal profiles and, and customizing that solution. When we take a look at, you know, the production of widgets, uh, you know, we're seeing that high degree of automation, uh, you know, increase robotics, uh, increase uh, end of arm tooling design and capability. Uh, you know, before you were using three access robots, I think those are probably antiquated like a buggy whip and everybody's going to a five axis robot. You know, we're now seeing the, uh, the evolution of wearable, um, you know, uh, automated technologies, which is creating a whole new uh, specter of opportunity within the organization. And so, you know, I, I think that automation has so many different facets. If we even take a look at order entry, you know, with COVID, not allowed to touch anything, you know, QWERTY codes, you know, you go to a restaurant, you scan your phone on a QWERTY code, boom, there's my entire menu. And now I can order it online. It's automated directly into the kitchen and the food comes out served. So automation has many, many layers, whether it's from data, whether it's in how you create the value add, 
or the administrative process. Um, so I, I and I'm liking it. In in some cases, I'm really liking it, and I I, I hope it stays. It's like uh, dealing with my doctor. Uh, before I would book an appointment, have to wait five or six weeks, trudge down to his office. He was typically overbooked. I basically have to sit in his waiting room for two hours and then I'd be processed in five minutes. And I really wondered if he considered that I was a human being or just another tick box on his checklist. Today, you know, I phone in, I make an appointment. Uh, they basically will do a telephone or video consult with me. They're not concerned about the privacy anymore. And you want to know something? They seem more relaxed. They seem to do a better job of diagnosis and analysis. And, you know, as a customer, I feel a lot better being diagnosed in the confines and comfort of my home. So, you know, that that term automation is a very loaded question uh, of what we're seeing. So I think COVID has definitely accelerated a lot of it um, to the benefit of many of us. I mean, I take a look at the automation. We just recently took delivery of a new vehicle. And I mean, the amount of sensor technology in that vehicle of emergency braking, automatic parallel parking. I mean, these technologies were basically, you know, un, uh, unaffordable just a few scant years ago. And now virtually every vehicle has it. And I also think that uh, with automation, there is also a, long, a lot of complexity and, and uh, a lot of data generated. And if that complexity is not managed properly behind the scenes at the operational level, it's going to be overwhelming to the organizations and it's going to become very expensive to the point that some people will not be able to manage their business efficiently. Uh, so it, it, as exciting as it is, we also need to understand what comes along with that. There is a lot of data, sure, millions of data points to which a piece of uh, software can make decisions, but the people behind it, the people that need to manage those decisions, the people that need to manage behavior uh, within their organizations, sometimes are not keeping up with the pace. So you make a, a big investment on automation, and again, if you don't have the right systems behind it, that the automation is going to fail you. So uh, I see it as a good and as a bad in some instances where it's going way too faster for some organizations. They are not ready uh, defining that future. What is that future state for every organization? Not everyone can afford those big, very complex technologies or have the proper systems in place to deal with them. I, I, I think it's interesting also uh, recently, Mariella and I had the opportunity to talk to uh, a lead engineer within Mercedes, and Mercedes was always considered a premium brand, advanced in their technology that they could put into their vehicles. And they said, you know, three to four years ago, uh, we typically felt that based on our investment in R&D, we were perhaps on average, you know, six to 10 years ahead of our closest competitor from a technical expertise. And they said, today, we're lucky if we are one to two years ahead of our closest competitor. And, you know, if you start taking a look at motor vehicle production, you know, 
really quality is no longer a differentiator whether no matter what level of automotive you're buying you're pretty well guaranteed a million miles out of the product and when you take a look at the features that are in the broad spectrum there's very little differentiator between a high-end vehicle and a bottom-end vehicle and i'm talking about just the features that you can purchase so you know it's interesting to see you know where that level of automation is going and, and how accepting people are of that automation and how affordable it's become yeah just going by your automotive example it uh, seems the the cars are getting more and more reliable as time goes on whereas a lot of other things are sort of throwaways you know you use them for a couple years and then you throw them away whereas cars are the complete opposite yes indeed yes. You know, it was interesting because we, we, uh, our existing vehicle, we had no problems with it whatsoever, but you know, it was 12 years old. It was getting over 200,000 kilometers and we were a little bit concerned. This is our, our daily, uh, reliable form of transportation. And we moved into a brand new vehicle, but you know, Mario, it was, it was wonderful, uh, that how familiar the vehicle felt compared to the old one, but wow, all the new technology that was put in there uh, is wonderful and scary. Scary about what happens if it breaks, how am I going to repair it, and how expensive is it going to be to repair? But at the same time, based on what we have lived, you know that if we were having this conversation 25 years ago, you were changing a car every three years because there was no reliability on it. Yes. Now you're thinking, maybe I keep this car for another thing because it's much more reliable than what it was. Comparable to, like you say, Mario, there are other items that you are opening them off the package and the item is breaking on you, right? Or think about not only um products that are hard in current technology look at products like food that have a tremendous background and backbone on technology required to get that product to your table um i can think of mandarins for example uh we were lucky many years ago to go to california to uh, one of the leaders in this industry and the factory is so amazing talking about the factory of the future this thing is a self-washing machine for uh, sanitation and food safety purposes you you turn off a bottom leave the plant and the thing washes itself like a dishwasher like a dishwasher and each one of your mandarins is that uh, receives 10 pictures that are checking the quality parameters that have been established to decide uh, where it gets uh, sorted to if it's an acceptable product or not. But when it gets to the hands of the consumer, because the supply chain in between, that product that was highly automated through the process then becomes maybe a perishable a day or two after you have received it. So, you know, where is the technology really doing uh, the impact to the final consumer? I am not seeing it. I get a product that two or three days is getting bad, and yet there has been millions of dollars at the factory level invested to ensure that that product is the best quality that is possible. So, you know, that, that disconnect uh, through the entire supply chain, I think is, is kind of a, 
the pro and the con of all these uh, dream of the future, because if not everyone is in the same page, it, it, you're going to be as strong as the weakest part on your supply chain. Yeah, but there's two factors that, that we always have to take into consideration. If you use your example like a mandarin, you can't really speed up nature to grow the mandarin quicker. I mean, they've tried, uh, but it is a small percentile. It's not that they're going to be able to grow a mandarin twice as fast. So, you know, we still have to wait for mother nature. And the second thing is after the processing and, and you and I have spent a lot of time looking at freshness and how do we preserve freshness in the supply chain is that a truck can still only drive 60 kilometer, you know, 60 miles per hour uh, down a highway. And so, you know, that other end of as much as we do automation in the factories, you know, what are we going to do in logistics? Exactly. I mean, we can't reduce distances. Uh, nature just hasn't figured that out. I mean, we can automate it, but even if we go to driverless trucks, if you take a look at, you know, 55,000 pounds on a tractor trailer, the cost of that driver, you know, uh, amortized over a shipment is an infantile little percentage impact on the product. And it's not really going to get the product to me any quicker or any fresher. Actually, these are the current setups of our exactly. supply chains. So that distributed, uh, I, I think that distributed value add is going to become very, very important. So, you know, I kind of go back that that factory of the future, it's not going to be one facility. So if you recall, when we did the PLC plant, um, you know, we basically had six hubs located globally that, you know, when a customer entered an order, we automatically looked what was the closest factory to where he wanted that product. And that's the factory we would wake up to produce that product. And so we could reduce that logistical cost. Uh, you know, very much the same thing that we saw at, at Lazy Boy with our furniture manufacturing. Now, do you see any other technologies emerging in the near future that we haven't discussed yet? I think that there, there's a lot of things that are happening and, and percolating, uh, Mario, that, that are in their infancy. Um, you know, I, I, I think we're talking about wearables. Wearables are still out there on the cusp. They have a huge amount of potential, um, you know, and I'm going to come back and address that. You know, I think what we're seeing with uh, drone deliveries, uh, you know, at this point, it looks like a toy, but, you know, what starts off as a toy can have merit. Um, I think, you know, autonomous vehicles, that whole issue of labor shortage is going to impact industry uh, quicker and harder than we anticipate. You know, we have a, a huge mass of our current working population that is scheduled to retire. Um, now, some people out of necessity are going to extend their working careers, which is going to dull uh, that transition. But we're, we're going to shortly, and we're already seeing the ex, you know extended amount of labor shortages. So, <clears throat> you know, the issue that we have when we talk about people is the intellectual requirement that we're seeking of our operators and our technical capability that our operators have is, is increasing at such a rapid rate that I don't know how we're gonna train these people to absorb this technology. So now what we're seeing is we're complementing it. So it's like, you know, uh, wearable technology. So one of the, the areas that we're seeing a, a huge uh, indent is in wiring. 
So particularly in automotive wiring, there, there's miles and miles of wire in a motor vehicle. So try and memorize how to put a wire harness together, how to thread the wire through the door of a, of a vehicle or through the engine compartment of a vehicle. Uh, now I can virtually take an operator, I can put a wearable uh, face shield on them and just say, follow the instructions. And the artificial intelligence knows where the operator is located, tells them what kind of wire to pick up, how to thread it. So again, the end customer is getting consistency. Um, you know, I don't have to train that operator. I'm not looking necessarily for a highly skilled operator, but yet if something goes wrong, that operator still has to be very quick to problem solve. So, you know, we're seeing the same of how do we build the reliability into a lot of the emerging technology. And I think that's gonna be a little bit of our impediment today. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more uh, automation, I think in each picks, uh, when I take a look at warehousing operations. I mean, uh, we have been blessed to see highly automated warehouses filled with robots, but they're still doing pallet picks, they're doing layer picks, they're doing box picks. But when you take a look at what's happening, you know, even in the Amazons, uh, when a customer is saying, I want one can of tomato ketchup, a bottle of mayonnaise, all of a sudden we're into each picks. And that is still a very much a manual process uh, where someone has to go to a pick face, remove it and put it in a container. So just as I alluded at the supermarkets, I mean, we're seeing people go with carts, they're picking four to eight orders concurrently uh, as they go through, as the, as the pick list is, is merged. Uh, but I think automation is definitely gonna come in where almost like a vending machine, you know, you punch it in, I want that particular candy bar and boom, it'll come in a box and be shipped to you within minutes. The other technology that I feel that is going to have a very strong play is nanotechnology. Um, compacting more in a smaller footprint. And if you look at TVs, for example, we bought some TVs lately and they are as thin almost as a piece of paper. Yeah. So when you look at the physical space that a TV was taken in a warehouse, yeah. right? Um, now you can pack like 10 TVs on what it used to be the space for one TV. So I think that nanotechnology is, is going to be the future of manufacturing. Along with 3D printing. Yes. Because now Take I can, now I can send a part electronically to a 3D printer anywhere Anybody in the world. Yes. So my logistics problem starts to go away. It's just, have I got the durability uh, capability in a 3D printed product. So I think the evolution of the materials used in 3D printing uh, is another frontier that's coming very quickly. Yeah, even though now 3D sounds old because yeah. it's been with us like for less than 10 years, <laughs> but yes. But I don't think people have totally harvested the potential of 3D. No, people meaning yeah. organizations. Yes. yes, for mass production. Correct. Now you touched on it briefly, but how do you see artificial intelligence impacting the factory of the future? So I think artificial intelligence, again, um, it's very intuitive and it, it really works blockchain with the amount of data that we're now able to harvest, gather, store and analyze it. And, and I don't think anybody has ever had 
so much data at their disposal as there is today, and it's only going to get more. Um, and as we utilize that uh, data, I think what we're going to see, and we're starting to see it more, is that AI is going to become more predictive um, in, in its analysis. And I think in some sectors, uh, it's very progressive. So it's like uh, our refrigerator, we have a water dispenser which has a filter. I'm connected through Wi-Fi with my refrigerator, as insane as it may be. But, you know, that filter is now monitoring how much water it has processed and is actually sending a message to my filter supplier saying, you know what, you've just gone and processed a thousand liters of water. It's now time to change your filter. Before, it was kind of on a to-do list that, oh, it's the spring, it's the first of the month. I'm going to go and change my filter. If you take a look at the vehicles, the vehicles that you're driving today, it's monitoring the environment that you're driving in, the types of driving that you're doing. If I'm doing a lot of city driving versus highway driving, it's going to pull up my service uh, requirements sooner. So I think we're going to see AI drive a lot more uh, predictive uh, uh, initiatives in the world. And then I think what we're going to see is that within AI, we're going to see AI applications uh, within our work environment. And so when we talk about automation and AI, there's, there's a heavy component there. But, you know, I see that the lot sizes are going to get smaller. Um, so setups are going to become a thing of the past. And I think the next dimension is we're going to see automation doing setups to automation. So a robot reprogramming a robot to make a widget. So I can really get that mass customization in a very modular footprint. And that's only going to be accomplished through AI. Um, you know, I have to keep a ton of different algorithms um, to go through and, and repurpose my automation to be the most cost effective. We've seen it in food industries where they're processing a product that's tied to commodity indexes and they basically store a thousand different recipes that the consumer can't detect the difference. But based on the commodity pricing on the fly, they're switching their recipes uh, without the operator's knowledge, without the consumer's knowledge. but the cost model is being preserved. I also see um, AI as putting a big pressure within a technical and skill support uh, inside of a factory. So we have seen customers spending a lot of money on um, AI systems that are telling the uh, organization what is going on in a world center. Uh, if there were micro stoppages, if uh, there were big uh, downtime uh, events. But when that information is spilled, there is not enough strength and knowledge internally to address it fast enough. So again, it's like AI gets wasted there because the, the one right-hand side is going faster than the left-hand side. It can keep up with that. Uh, I think they, in the challenge for the AI architects of the world are how to turn around that AI and make the system self-healing. So if I have a, a high-speed packaging line and I know that a sensor, my AI within the packaging line is giving me feedback that there is a faulty sensor 
now the designer of that line should have a design that allows the machine to speed out that faulty sensor and automatically re reload a new one without having to suffer any downtime or waiting until a human being makes the decision to go and grab one from the shelf and replace it. Just but, to see the full advantage of the technology. And AI works wonderful until it gets attitude. And believe me, you got to <laughs> deal with this AI like it's a human being that it has its own personality, has its own attitude. I mean, when we renovated, uh, you know, I will admit uh, we are gadget geeks. Uh, our new renovation is fully automated that, you know, when we arrive, you know, with my smartphone, the GPS is talking to my Google Home and it's saying, oh, Richard's about to walk in the door. We got to turn on the lights. Let's turn on the air conditioner. Oh, he likes to have his TV turned on to this particular channel. And you want to know something? You get take that stuff for granted until there's a power failure and it kind of sets everything to zero. And then you come in, you go, oh, man, I don't know how to turn the lights on. I don't remember. Where's the remote to turn on the TV? So, you know, and I think we're going to see that in the factories as well, is our operators are going to have to have a much increased skill level of being able to reset the AI. It, it's, it's, it's going to be great when it works, and it's going to give us a lot of benefits. But when it breaks, are we going to have the skills to put it back again? Yeah, it's sort of a, on a big scale what uh, you see a lot of people, if their cell phones aren't working, they, they sort of don't know what to do with themselves. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, exactly the same thing. Now, uh, a cell phone can be a very powerful and dangerous tool, but, you know, also when you have, let's say, an injection molding machine or a robot that can kill a person. Uh, right, or can damage a product that is worth thousands of dollars in raw materials, uh, you know, or a car that, uh, that is on the highways and has, uh, you know, 10 people around it. So the, the, the impact, what are people really doing with these tools and how far are they going to take these tools uh, and how fast? I mean, you, you know, you get a kid uh, um, in their teens or early 20s and they get in front of a device and within five minutes they have figured it out. And both ways, right? They have figured out how it works and how figured out how it doesn't work so well or how they can harm someone or how can they hack someone with it just for the fun of doing it. I, th I think the cell phone is a great analogy, Mario, and I think businesses are struggling with that because a lot of them have policies in place that employees are not allowed to use their cell phones while they're in the work environment. And it, it, let's take a look at a cell phone from a couple perspectives. I mean, even if we go back 10 years, you know, BlackBerry was the go-to smartphone and it had you know, a lot of capability, but you take a look at an Apple or a Samsung today. I mean, you can do, you feel comfortable doing your banking off your cell phone. Uh, I can basically run my house off my cell phone. I can look at spreadsheets. Uh, I, I virtually don't need a computer. I can do everything off my cell phone. I can do my video conferences. I can do my chats. Um, and, you know, there's a blurring because, and I'm going to go back to the grocery store analogy. I mean, the kid, they're hiring high school kids and they're putting an app on their cell phone and the kids are using that app to pick somebody's grocery order. 
Now, what's going to stop them from, you know, texting a friend or, you know, phoning their parents to say, hey, I'm at work. Here's what I'm doing. So I think as businesses, you know, we need to uh, learn to adapt the blurring of that technology that we're using in our personal lives and how can we leverage it uh, within our working environments because it's no no longer two separate arenas anymore. It's, it's all in one. Lots of great insights on the factory of the future. Thank you for listening to part one of our interview with Richard and Mariella. Be sure to listen to part two, which will focus on data, customization, robots, and how to address challenges.